Grandpa, tell me again why you never went to an Ivy League school, even though you dreamed of it. It was because of my high school biology teacher. Oh, yeah. That bastard! Okay, Grandpa. I was a straight-A student. Mm -hmm. I never got a B or anything less than an A. Yeah, I know. You've told me, Grandpa. And then that jackass... Yeah biology teacher mm -hmm. gives me not an A, yeah, which yeah. I deserved. Of course you did. Not even a B, for crying out loud. Not even a B. My report card comes out, yep. and he's given me just an average grade. Not an A or a B. No! Yeah. And that's why I never got accepted at Harvard. Mm -hmm. And you're still bitter about it, are you? Hell yes. That teacher ruined my life. The old man and the sea. I fought for a B minus, but he wouldn't budge. Will not be presented at this time. All because of one lousy grade. So that we may bring you the following <laughs> special <laughs> podcast. It's almost live. Still alive. It's alive. A limited podcast series about Northwest Television's legendary TV sketch comedy show. An amazing phenomenon. Featuring intimate conversations with the writers, performers, creators. Rustlers, cutthroats, murderers, bounty hunters, desperados, bushwhackers, hornswagglers, horse thieves, bulldogs, train robbers, bank robbers, ass-kickers, shit-kickers, and murderers. Your host was one of them. I think I would remember a thing like that. Pat Cashman. What's the matter with you? Almost live. <laughs> it's a real nice surprise. Still alive. Just a real nice surprise. It was inevitable. As a weekly sketch comedy show, Almost Live was often compared to Saturday Night Live. And why not? Almost Live aired on Seattle's King TV every Saturday night, immediately adjacent to the venerated SNL. Both shows had live in the title, both traded in sketch comedy, both featured regular ensemble casts of performers and writers satirizing the world around them. The national SNL show, more broadly, the local almost live, more locally. But while Saturday Night Live featured a different guest host every week, Almost Live from 1988 to 1999 had the same guest host every time, John Keister. Yep. That's his last name, Keister. Insert your joke here. He's heard them all. John Keister and Seattle grew up together. His neck of the woods is the Seward Park neighborhood. Abraham Lincoln, who had quite a neck himself, had a secretary of state named William Seward. Seward's the guy who came up with the idea of buying Alaska in 1867. Alaska was so cheap, he bought it with cash on hand and some coupons. John Keister grew up in a time when kids spent more time on bicycles than they did on their damn phones. The preceding sentence was written by a grouchy old guy from Covington. Seward Park's not far from Lake Washington, pretty near the spot where summertime seafair hydroplane races take place. And John, like a lot of other Seattle kids at the time, were so enamored with the sport of hydroplane racing that they would fashion toy versions of the big boats. They would tie them onto their bikes with long strings and then drag them behind as they pedaled at top speed down the neighborhood streets. Today, the kids would be arrested. For that dragging part of the Keister story, I thought one of two songs might be appropriate to insert here. This is one of them. And this is the other one. You can put in your vote and I'll get back to you. John attended Sharpless Junior High, now called Casper W. Sharpless Alternative Secondary School, which is too much for any kid to remember or spell. 
Franklin High School was John's next stop, he being just one of many famous Franklin alumni, including Fred Hutchinson, baseball star. Born in Seattle in 1919, Fred Hutch Hutchinson was a star baseball player at Franklin High School. And today he's the namesake of Seattle's preeminent cancer research center. Not long after Hutch passed away, his brother, Dr. Bill Hutchinson, a well-known Seattle surgeon, decided to build a living memorial to Fred. The result is the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. There was a student named Ron Santo who became a Hall of Fame baseball star. Around the ball, deep the center, back, 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 and high! A great Another alum was Key Luke, an actor famous as number one son in the Charlie Chan movies. Then using the sacrificial knife, was to throw everyone off the track. Right, Pop? Yes. The cartoonist, Linda Berry, went to Franklin. My grandmother lived with us, and she was definitely from the Philippines. I mean, she's uh -huh. kind of like a National Geographic kind of woman. Uh -huh. She. Um, well, what does that mean exactly? Well, she, she smoked cigarettes with the lighted end in her mouth. International dancer and choreographer Mark Morris went there, too. I started dancing young for a boy. I started when I was eight or nine years old. And, um... Around 10, 11, 12, I started making up dances. Another Franklin graduate, one-time Governor Gary Locke. There's so many issues in our community, in our nation, that touch everybody. Seattle's legendary sports writer, Royal Brome, went there. Take me out to the ball game. And some of old man Nordstrom's kids went there. He had three sons, and the three of them ran the business as a team. And the musician, Kenny G. And Johnny K. John Keister. Everybody went to Franklin, except, of course, Franklin. Next, the UW, working with the student newspaper, The Daily. After graduating, John got hired at a Seattle music magazine, The Rocket, which led to a gig called The Rocket Report on King TV. And not long after, a new show called Almost Live came along, and through an unlikely happenstance, John began doing stuff for it. Spoiler alert, again, John eventually became the host of the show. Good evening and welcome to the John Report. I'm John, here's my report. And then when Almost Live took a dirt nap in 1999, Keister tried a new show across town on Cairo TV, along with another Almost Live guy, Bob Nelson. They called it the John Report with Bob. The John Report with And then John was a writer on The Eyes of Nye, a national show featuring another Almost Live alum, Bill Nye, and his eyes. And that, my friends, is worth thinking about. Today, John Keister is sort of a Seattle icon, as much as the Space Needle, although not as tall, as much as grunge music without the distorted guitar and the angst, and even as native as the gooey duck, although Keister himself is not a bivalve mollusk with a shell, unless he's been holding out on me. He's the dad of three adult kids, Elroy, Riley, and Arlo. And just like William Faulkner, Warren Buffett, Eminem, who all stayed in the places they grew up, so has John Keister. Oh, he's plenty fast, but I caught up with him. My personal friend since 1931. Here he is from the Seattle home he shares with his wife, Mary, still living within blocks of the old neighborhood. If I was lucky enough to interview the 1927 New York Yankees, yeah. I would look forward most to, to interviewing Babe Ruth. Uh -huh. And I would submit to you that this man is the Babe Ruth of Almost Live. Both of them <laughs> left-handers, by the way. It's yes. John Keister. 
Hi, Pat. How are you? I'm doing very well, actually. That's good. I'm very happy to hear that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start off where, where it all began for you. And I, and I would just say at the beginning that nobody was more of a, an appreciator and a historian of Seattle in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and beyond than you were, which made you, of course, the most uh, significant person on Almost Live because you knew the history of this place. So you knew where the jokes were, you know where, who the funny people were, what the funny companies were, what things were funny, weren't funny, and all of that. So where did you grow up? Where were you born? And let's, let's hear a little of your biography. Well, I was uh, born uh, at the uh, Virginia Mason Hospital uh, in Seattle. And uh, I grew up, I didn't understand uh, how unique the situation was, the neighborhood that I grew up in. But what yeah. a lot of people are very surprised about is that, uh, that Seattle has uh, the largest, I believe, maybe, maybe second to New York, uh, but the largest uh, community of Sephardic Jews in the United States. Uh, and that community ran um, most of the, uh, when I was young, they ran uh, like all the fish stands at uh, the, the market, the Pike Place Market and, uh, and other businesses around. And we were the only non-Jewish family on our entire, in our neighborhood. And uh, so we were the only ones who you know, put up Christmas tree, Christmas lights and things like that. And when I got to be older, my dad told me, look, I'm done putting up these Christmas lights. You know, if, uh, if you want to do it, if you got, if you boys want to do it, you, you know, go ahead and do it yourself. And you can either do it or you can convert, but I'm not <laughs> yeah, doing right. it anymore. Well, actually that's interesting because my brother, one time, my younger brother came to the house into inside for dinner and he says are we jewish and and my parents were like no we're not jewish why did you say that and then he, he went outside and then he came back in and he said well what are we then <laughs> and, and and they were like oh my goodness we've got to we we need to take and so we had to go to this presbyterian church for a few years which i hated i mean it's just like ruined sunday and i was like oh jesus you know i'd rather you know i'd rather Go to did Temple you, to Hirsch. You know, did you have this? Did you have the Sunday school component along with it? Oh yeah, it was. It, right. it was strange because uh, in that class was uh, uh, Mark Morris, the uh, choreographer. Uh, you know the the the, the, the ballet player. choreographer. Yeah. Yes, and uh, the the and uh, one of the guys that uh, later went on to do the Rainier beer ads that were kind of before us were the main source of comedy. Oh, they were great. Yeah, yeah. I remember yeah. Mickey, Mickey Rooney was in one of them. Yes, right. And uh, with Boone Kirkman, <laughs> who was a local guy. A, a, and a, a boxer, yeah. Yes, he was a boxer, a local boxer. And they had him do, they had all the, a whole bunch of local celebrities in it. But the one with Boone Kirkman, I remember he was trying, hey, Mickey, what should we do? And he just, and Mickey just went, shut up. <laughs> like, and you can clearly see that he was just doing that. And, was like, and, and they just left it in. Running wild reindeer beers high in the Cascade Mountains with Mickey Rooney and Boone Kirkman. Here he comes. He's a dandy. Mickey, get glass. I'll get the glass. I've got it. Now pop his cap. Whoa, look out. He's gone. Well, one thing, they, they didn't all get away. I'll tell you and tell us, Mick, were you thrilled at seeing the wild Rainier? Yes, I was, Vern. He was big and cold and mountain fresh, too, everything you want. We'll get him next time, Mick. Shut up. And next week, we search for the elusive Tasmanian wombat. When, when, our, uh, when our friend uh, Bob Nelson was uh, touring around his movie, uh, Nebraska was, 
was uh, debuting. Did you ever hear his story about Mickey Rooney? Yes, I did. Yeah. Yes, he's, to- he's talking to Mickey Rooney, or he's talking yeah. to Jack Nicholson, I Jack think Nicholson, is what it was, yes, yes. of all people. And then Mickey Rooney comes walking up, and Nicholson t- basically tells Mickey to get lost or some, <laughs> something like that. Poor yeah. Mickey. And he's almost at the end of his life, and he's getting no love. And he was once the king of Hollywood. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So yeah, that's, I grew up in, and, and I, I, one time, uh, 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 Marilee, uh, my, my ex-wife, uh, God rest her soul, uh, uh, was, um, I, she, we went on a, fi- a chartered fishing trip with, uh, uh, these guys that were from my Sunday school class that, that eventually went to do these rainier beer ads and things like that. And, huh. And then she had met Mark Morris and I said, and I mean, and these people are nuts. I mean, they're crazy. And, uh, and I mentioned to her that I said, you know, there was a teacher, there was a Sunday school teacher who had all of us, me, Mark Morris, uh, you know, Tom from, uh, Heckler associates, which did those ads. Oh yeah. Terry Heckler. Yeah. Terry. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, we were all in the same class and she was just like, I, she couldn't conceive that one teacher had to deal with all of us. And <laughs> we would regularly, this teacher, she would start crying. I mean, she would, we would bring her to tears, you know, and, uh, it, you know, which we thought was hysterical. Which is kind of, you probably figure that was your job too. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. God. So, so then, so you're growing up, where, where, did, where was grade school? Uh, was was, uh, right there uh, in, uh, uh, it was called Graham Hill, who, uh, if you might remember, was mentioned a lot in Monty Python because he was a uh, yeah. British racing champion. That's right. He was, he was a race Graham, car driver. Yeah. yeah, Graham Hill. And we always would hear him, and Graham Hill has won the Formula One. And we were like, what the? Graham Hill is the leader and rolls on for the 200 laps, 500 miles. But anyway, that but was. But the school hard. wasn't named after him, was it? <laughs> no, but we pretended that it was. Yeah, yeah, because that's it's cooler yeah. than whoever probably was no. named after. No, it was because it was on top of Graham Hill. Oh, and, oh I, uh, yeah, okay. Yes, and and uh, and that school would get shut down during Jewish holidays. I mean, during Yom Kippur and you know Rosh Hashanah. So you, so you, and uh, and all the other white guys up there were known as the Graham Crackers, right? Yes, pretty yeah, much. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, to a degree that you would find pretty much unbelievable. Yeah. Then where'd you go to junior high? Well, that's where we, I went to junior high to a place it, it no longer is called this. It's, it's, it was called Sharpless, uh, junior high. And then I went Sharpless? to Franklin. Huh? Yeah. Sharpless? Sharpless. Yeah. And we had, uh, there, uh, 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 in the same neighborhood, there was Mercer junior high. And you know, the thing was Sharpless is shapeless, but Mercer is worser. And you know, we had all these <laughs> dippy, you know, teenage things like that. But, uh, Sharpless was one of those schools that almost got shut down because it was so insane. We, people called it little Vietnam hmm. and, uh, uh, not because there were any refugees there yet, which they, you know, that neighborhood became full, but, but because it was like going to war. And, uh, uh-huh. I ran into teachers. I ran into, there was one particular teacher who was a, a Eastern European guy. His name was Mr. Zarnovica and, and, uh, and he had this really interesting way of talking. And he was a substitute teacher once for a week in Sharpless. Then I never saw him again. 
But I actually ran into him later in life, and I, I recognized his voice. And I said, hey, you know, you were a substitute teacher at the junior high. I went to, what, what? And he was like, I said, yeah, I went to Sharpless. And he said, that is hell, the hell of Seattle School District. That was the hell. It was hell. And I was like, yeah, 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 it was. It was. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so you got out of hell, and then where'd you go to high school? Uh, went to uh, Purgatory, which was Franklin. Yeah. Uh, which, <laughs> you know, it's at the intersection of MLK and Rainier. Named uh, after the race car driver, Graham yeah. Franklin. Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, Franklin was such an old school that uh, it, was, uh, uh, it was constructed in 1912. Wow. And one of the early students that was in there, because it was in the... Uh, uh, it kind of straddled the Asian neighborhood of Seattle. So you, you, in those days, because of the, there, it was before the open housing laws, there was the Jewish neighborhood and there was the mm -hmm. Asian neighborhood and there was the black neighborhood in Seattle. And, you, and they really wouldn't allow those groups to migrate a lot. And uh, uh, the, the master Po in the Kung Fu series, remember the blind yes. master? Yes. Uh, the scissors cut the paper. The paper covers the rock. The rock crushes the scissors. Is not playing a child's game a waste of time? In games, children teach sometimes more than books. Calm, instruct an old man and yourself. He, he went to Franklin, and that was a big claim to fame. Uh, wow. and, uh, and there was a lot of other He people. wasn't in your class, though. Uh, no, he was in the class of, I believe, 1914. I believe. Yeah, 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 yeah. He played number one son in those uh, Charlie... Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. In the yeah those, movies. those very politically correct uh, yes, Charlie Chan yes, movies. Exactly. Yeah. That yeah. never had an actual Asian playing Charlie Chan. Pop, before it's too late, I think there's something you ought to know. Number two son resembled criminal, about to make confession. I don't know whether I've told you yet or not, but... I think you're the swellest papa fella ever had. Humble parent thanks unsettled weather for expression of love from favorite offspring. Going to a school named after Benjamin Franklin, who was a Quaker. Yes. And, and how unlikely it was that uh, you were going to mount a, a very uh, formidable football team. Yeah, it, it's interesting because the people, uh, you know, I'd say, well, you know, he's a Quaker, which most students at Franklin had no idea what that was, you know. They understood what a football was, but yeah, maybe, uh, maybe they had Quaker oats for breakfast. Yeah. But, you know, no, yeah, it. yeah, that would be the sort of thing we would put up on. We would take, you know, yeah, pictures of Quaker oats and make posters out of that kind of stuff. But the, yeah, they wouldn't get. I would say, you know, the Quakers are a nonviolent religious sect, and and we'd have <laughs> these posters that would say, "Kill them, Quakers!" You know, "Kill them!" You know, and cheers. The cheers were like. Beat them, bust them. That's our custom. Go Quakers, go! You know, and it was like <laughs> ridiculous, you know. And I mean, and we were horrible in um, uh, football, except for the notable exception that Terry Metcalf. Uh, oh yeah, the running back number twenty-one. Terry Metcalf was personally drafted by Coriel because he annually destroyed his Aztecs with coast-to-coast -coast plays like this one against New England. Yeah. And he was, he was. People were terrified of uh of terry metcalf and he would just get the ball and he would you know run 
and he would score touchdowns because he would just knock people out of the way, you know, and stuff. And yeah. it, was, it was insane. Didn't he wind up playing for the Cardinals later? Yeah, he was. And, well, he was an All-American in college, yeah. and yes, he did. And then I actually, believe it or not, later in life, uh, uh, I was able to interview that guy, Thomas Hollywood Henderson. You remember yeah. from the Dallas Cowboys? From the Dallas Cowboys, yeah. Down goes Keyword, Thomas Henderson. That's the way Hollywood Henderson wants to be exposed, right? And he had written in his book that everybody in the NFL was terrified of Terry Metcalf, that he was the guy that <laughs> he was. Hollywood Henderson was a defensive player. And he would say that when the coaches would get on him, he'd say, man, I got to go out there and deal with Terry Metcalf and you're giving me this crap. And that's exactly the way I, when I read that, I, that's exactly the way everybody else at Franklin felt about him. Like, God, you know, he, he, he got a wide berth. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did you have a, a good time at Franklin and were you a good student there? Uh, I actually was a, a good student at Franklin because um, Franklin, I, I, I yeah, I, 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 that's where I first uh, got on stage. I had a very, very good uh, drama. The, our, our drama teacher uh, was extremely good. Uh, no one ever showed up to see our. I mean, it was one of those things where there's more people on stage than in the audience. You know, yeah, nobody yeah. came to those sorts of things. Sounds like my but, high school. Yeah, but yeah, uh, but I, did I you do was, you do dramas? Did you do musicals too? You know, I'll tell you something. We did a musical once, and uh, I've brought this up to people that um, we did a musical once. Uh, the the musical was Celebration. I don't know if you ever knew that. Oh, I want to celebrate. This isn't the cool in the gang celebrate, right? No, no, it was, um, we did things like no, no, Nanette and things yeah. like that, you know, but, but celebration was a kind of a contemporary thing that just been on Broadway and it was a really cool, very experimental thing. And so the, uh, the, our teacher, uh, decided to tap Mark Morris as the choreographer for, for this and this was when Mark was uh, he was dancing with Jose Greco at the time. He was such a prodigy. That, but he's uh, but he's still in high school. He's still in high school, but wow. he would like on the weekends he'd be gone for like a week, and we'd find out that he was in he'd been in like Hungary or Czechoslovakia dancing with you know Jose Greco's dance group, and it was I mean it was, he was just marking his time. He but, he, but he had a goofy side to him. I remember you telling me a story one time where you were sitting in the classroom yes, and know. looking out the door of the classroom and yes. tell, and, tell, tell people okay, that yeah. story. So I'm just sitting there bored and uh, Mark goes by and he just sort of sees out of the corner of his eye that there I am. And so then he, he was just walking by casually. And then I, and then, uh, you know, a few seconds later, he walks the other direction. <laughs> and then, then he, all of a sudden he walks the other direction and, and he keeps going back and forth, but he's not, he's not making eye contact with me. So I start laughing. But he knows you're looking at him. Yeah. He knows I'm looking at him. And then uh, I think, okay, it's all over. He's gone to class. And then, uh, you know, five minutes goes by and he goes, he goes by again. <laughs> and then I'm like starting to really lose it in class. And then, you know, 10 minutes, there he is again. And then, then he goes, he goes back. And then suddenly he's walking backwards. He goes, you know, back, you know, like he's, but he's not looking. 
And I mean, he spent the entire the just, entire quarter just okay, for you, the entire class, just doing that. Uh, and I mean, by the end, I'm like, I'm just crying. And I'm like, and the teacher's like, John, what the, John, pay attention. What are you doing? And I'm like, I, you know, but you know, uh, that yeah. sounds stupid, but that stuff's still funny. I mean, oh god, it was just insane. Oh, god, it's good. It was so wonderful. But but okay. Anyway, what I was going to say about this uh, this thing was Mark Morris was the choreographer. Kenny G was in the uh, the band that that you know that played there. Wow. Linda Bear, Linda Berry, who just recently won a MacArthur Genius Grant, you know, cartoonist. Uh, uh, she did the poster for it, and I was you know one of the people on stage. And I you know how much money how much money would it cost to get Kenny G, Mark Morris, have Linda do the poster? You know, I mean, it would have been that that's like. Million, if you minimum ten million dollars. That's know. quite an assemblage of people that just yeah. coincidentally all landed at Franklin. Yeah, all, wow. all in one class, by the way. Yeah, all amazing. in the class of, of yeah. seventy four. Which I've discovered, it's really weird how many uh, performers came out of that year. It's it's kind of strange. And as you remember, most of our cast was, was uh, that year as well. Yeah. Hey, are are you hearing? Uh, I've got a neighbor running a chipper out there. Can you hear that motor noise? I have my window open. Hang on. Larry, knock it off! I'm talking to John Keister. Thank you. Good guy. So, uh, so your time at Franklin, you're a good student, and then it's time to start thinking about college. Yeah. Well, I, you know, so I did. Did you did you write um, in high school? Were you on the school newspaper? You know what? I wasn't because I did not respect the teacher who uh, was running it, uh, and uh, uh, and uh, I and I uh, I I was I took writing very seriously at that age, and I knew she was a dummy. She was like, <laughs> she, we did not. We had we had a lot of really good teachers, but we had a lot of real bad teachers, and she was a. And I was like, I'm not going to write for this this moron. That that <laughs> is pretty much the way I felt. You know? and, and so, was that but, a belief shared by a lot of other people? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I won't, you know, mention her name, but she was just useless as a. Is she still alive and still dumb? As far as you know. I, as far as I know, you know. But uh, it was like, oh yeah. Well, why don't you run the writing program? Okay. You know, like whatever. You know, it was like. Anyway, um, uh, I I would argue with you know, I, I told uh, you know uh, a lot of people that I thought Franklin was the perfect preparation for college because there they didn't care what you did you know you if you were going to be a good student it was up to you I mean there was mm -hmm. no follow-through there was none of that kind of uh, accountability that most of the students just like college yeah 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 it was it was very much it, I, I was I'm used a, to that and I, so keep talking i'm going to go over there and shut this window I, it's, I, yeah, it's yeah, bugging I, I, me okay uh, it, keep talking know, all right well i was used to uh being at franklin i got used to just doing the things because i wanted to do them and uh there was nobody there was no accountability and i i, I actually am very sad to say that a huge portion of that school had they been taught to i think would have done very well but they were uh as long as you weren't actively committing a homicide they basically let you you know do whatever you wanted to do because well, the were, mark were, the mark morris's the kenny g's they just uh did their own thing and kind of taught themselves yes their, their craft by the way uh i uh every comic has a kenny g joke uh 
everybody everybody um, uh, has this assumption that Kenny G is this sort of pampered suburban Jewish guy who you know picked up a saxophone and kind of you know defiled jazz. And as a comedian, when people laugh, it's very exciting. And when they don't, it feels like you're performing jazz. <laughs> People are kind of bobbing their head and <laughs> looking to the side, and I'm like, oh, you know, I enjoy jazz. But then I get worried. I'm like, sometimes jazz sucks. What if I'm the Kenny G of comedy? You know, like, what if I think I sound like this? Like, and in fact, I sound like this. No, 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 no. And, and they don't, they really don't understand that he was often the only white player in a lot of uh, bands in Seattle and that the, the music scene was very segregated at that time. And he was often the only white person, even in the clubs that he played. And mm. th this is a guy who really did pay his dues. He, he really did. And, uh, he, uh, eventually got picked up because he was such a good player and he played for the orchestras when, you know, like say if Sammy Davis Jr. came to town. I gotta be me. I gotta be me. He did a little flourish with, uh, at one time on, at the end of a song and, uh, and Sammy Davis looked back and said, oh, look, Goyam's getting cute. And, uh, and I looked back at him, and Kenny <laughs> told me that he resisted the. He, he felt like saying, "I'm Jewish," but he 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 did not do it. But yeah. uh, I was very excited when he became, uh, uh, you know, so famous. Yeah, and, and whatnot. Yeah. He did. He did very well. One time, he did this. He does this kind of circular breathing. Yes. Stunt too, which sounds like he's not taking a breath. Yeah. As he's playing, which is pretty cool. But uh, one time, he was being feted at some sort of charity, and I can't remember what it was. He was going to be the guest of honor. They were going to uh -huh. give, him, give him an award and all of that. And I was happened to be emceeing that awards thing. And so somebody, and I'm sure you've gotten into these situations too, where somebody says, hey, we've got a great idea, Pat. We're, let's dress you up like Kenny G, like at the beginning uh, of, of, the, of the evening. Because we have so much trouble getting people to come into the ballroom and sit down. And so we'll play Kenny G recorded music. And then they'll, they'll look inside the ballroom and you'll have your back to everybody. And they'll, and you'll have the long hair wig and everything. And, and everybody will say, Hey, look, there's Kenny. He's, he's playing early and they'll all come into the room and, and, uh, and then we'll yeah. succeed and then we can start the program. And yeah. I should have said, no, I'm not doing that. That sounds stupid. But I agreed to do it, of course, because I'm not very yeah. smart. So I'm yeah, wearing, I'm wearing the, sat, the satin outfit, and I got this wig on, and they gave me a, a saxophone. And so, uh, so, I, so I start doing my thing, and I'm playing, pretend playing the saxophone, and I can hear people milling in to the room behind me. And, I, and this is what I actually heard from some people who were just about to sit down at their table very close to me very close to the stage a guy says to his wife i assume my god i never realized kenny g had such a fat ass <laughs> true story that's great it didn't work at all of course it was a stupid idea i mean i can tell you my kenny g story was that uh 
you know, when I became host of the show and things were getting kind of rocky and not going well, I actually, you know, we needed a, uh, we needed a big name guest. And I, I called Kenny and, uh, I was at, <laughs> as you remember, I, I was kind of at wit's end that uh, season. And I, and I called him and when he answered, he was like, Oh, uh, Hey, and I said, Kenny, it's John Keister. And he, Oh, hi John. What's up? And I was like, uh, listen, uh, uh, I need you to come on the show and play some music and you know, would you do it? And he's like, well, yeah. What, what, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, please come on. And I was like, please come on. He's like, okay, John, look, I'm going to come on your show. I'll, I'll come on your show. It's okay. But I can't do it this week. You know, I got to do it next week. And I was like, okay, but you're going to come, right? I mean, and then he's like, yes, yes. You know? And I said, well, the only way we, the only way we can do this, you know, we got to promote it. You know, I need the ratings and we have to promote that you're going to be on the show. So we need to do a commercial. And he's like, okay, well, okay. What do you want to do? And I was like, well, we could go down to the market. I had this idea. We can go down to the Pike Place market and you can pretend like you're a street musician and then he immediately is like, oh yeah, we could eat at the Place Bigal and we could do that. I said, yeah, you know, whatever. But you know, you could be, you know, this street musician and I'll just pretend like, you know, you know, that, 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 you know, I'll go up to you and, and uh, say, Hey, you look like you're a good musician. You want to be on the show? You know, like that, like the, like I'm grabbing somebody off the street, you know? And so we go, he's like, Oh, okay. So we go down there and he sets up, he brings his, you know, sacks out and he puts a, a, you know, a thing in front of him for people to do donations. He starts playing and people come up and they go like, man, you really got the Kenny G thing down. That's, this guy is awesome. You know, this is great, <laughs> you know? And he goes, uh, well, what's a, what's your favorite Kenny G song? And they name a song and he like, like plays it really fast. And they're like, Whoa, wow. That's really great. You know, you not only look like him, you sound like him. Yeah, you sound like, him. and he goes, well, I am Kenny G. And they're like, okay, right. You know? And he's like, and they wouldn't believe him, you know? And then eventually this one guy was like, wait a minute. And he's like, what do you, I don't, what? And, and it was like this thing where like, what are you, why are you, what's going on? What are, you know, like, like, what are you down on your luck? And uh, so, uh, so then he goes like, uh, Hey, it's Kenny G. Uh, I want you to, you know, watch the, uh, the almost live, uh, which is hosted now by my high school friend, John Keister. And, and, and then we did that and we put that out as, as and people at King were like, how? Did you do what? Well, how did you do that? Yeah. Which you was, did it. Yeah. That's yeah. good. That, that, you know, That's sure good. That is great. That's a good idea, too. I like, I like that idea. It was fun. Yeah, it was really cool. I wish I had that. I really wish I had that. You jump on to decide to go to the University of Washington. Yes. And at the University of Washington, you do write for the school newspaper. I do, yes. Uh, there, I uh, eventually became editor of the uh, the Daily, even though I wasn't a communications uh, uh, student. Uh, I was English major, but uh, the, it was in, the paper was independent, and uh, I, you know, I was an English major, and I thought, oh, I'm going to write the great the great American novel you know, at the time, and then that mm, it just sort of wasn't working out. I had yeah. really great, really great teachers there, and. Uh, you but, know, I was the editor of my school uh, uh-huh. college newspaper, but we were just a weekly. How uh-huh. did you put out a paper every day there? Well, I'll tell you, you know, you have to have a, you know, we had a big staff, we had a big budget and, uh, and we, 
I'll tell you, you know, that's another thing. You know, I mentioned the thing about uh, that play. It, when I was at the Daily, that's when, as you remember, Dave Horsey, who has won yeah. two Pulitzer Prizes for trying to, he was the cartoonist there. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, Tim Egan, who wrote, Ooh, yeah. uh, he's now a columnist for the New York Times, and he wrote The Good Rain and all that. He, he won a Pulitzer Prize. Wow. And an old girlfriend of mine, Evelyn Iratani, won the Pulitzer Prize uh, when she went to work for the Los Angeles Times. And Charlie Cross was there. And he wrote the biography, Heavier Than Heaven, of uh, Kurt Cobain, which yeah. was the New York Times bestseller. Very Jim prolific. Emerson, yeah, Jim Emerson was the movie reviewer, and he, he ended up running Roger Ebert's site and became Roger Ebert's sort of right-hand man. And it's kind of recognized as the greatest uh, movie reviewer of his generation. Hey, did I ever tell you the story of my Charlie Cross story? I was, uh, well, I, I'm, I can't wait, but yeah, uh, I'm yeah. doing well. It, it, I, I'm doing a radio, morning radio, and the Grammys had just happened the night before. Uh-huh. And, and I have a brand new producer. And it's early in the morning. It's like six in the morning. And I say to the producer, hey, uh, you want somebody to talk about uh, the Grammys from last night. Um, there's a guy who's just a music uh, critic and uh, as prolific a music writer as there is in this town, Charlie Cross. Get him on the line and let's let's see what he thought of last night's awards. Uh-huh. Uh, I said okay. So I'm we're talking about other stuff, and all of a sudden on this little screen in front of me, it tells you that you've got a call waiting. A line one is Charles Cross. So there he oh there it is. Okay, so I I do some kind of intro last night the Grammy Awards. Uh, and we thought we'd talk to a guy who knows a thing or two about music, the great Charlie Cross. Charlie, nice to have you on with us this morning. And this guy goes, well, yeah, man, it's great to be on. Uh, 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 what, what the hell is it? What do you want? I realized this, the producer got, he didn't even vet the guy. He just got, yeah. went to the phone book and got, it's a, obviously uh, a very nice black man named Charles Cross. And, <laughs> And so I just decide, hell, I'm just going to go with it. And I said, uh, did you see the Grammy Awards last night? Oh, the what? The uh, Grammy, <laughs> Grammy Awards. I don't I got no TV, man. And we just go on and talk. And I, and I ask her, Who, who's your favorite artist? I love Aretha Franklin, man. She is so <laughs> So the inter- interview was hilarious, but it was not the real Charlie Cross. Yeah, but it turned out maybe even better. I don't know. Yeah, that would have been it would have been Charlie during the, the during his college years. I think that actually would have been Charlie. That, that <laughs> but uh, no, it was like uh, yeah, to put out uh, you know, I mean, you, you find out that you you keep the same hours as like show people and cops and stuff like that when you put out a daily newsroom. You're up till like two in the morning, wow. and. Uh, and yeah, you're right, 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 right. And but the thing was, I realized that I I loved the immediacy of journalism. So I thought, no, I'm not going to write a novel. I'm gonna I'm gonna be a journalist. And so, yeah, I worked uh, at uh, at the student newspaper, and then uh, later uh, at the local newspaper called the Seattle Sun, which had an mm-hmm. arts and entertainment section mm-hmm. that was yeah. called the Rocket. Uh, well, it started while I was there that arts and entertainment section. And then then we the Rocket went independent uh and uh we i i had some money some graduation uh present money from my parents and i bought a typesetting machine with it 
I spent all my my parents' money on spending on buying a typesetting machine for the rocket, which they were thrilled about. And yeah, I'm uh, sure, I'm sure. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, real good move there. And uh, so I, you know, essentially, you know, then we started uh, this. So you, uh, you blew your whole money wad there on a yeah, and and so for, then a, I became, for a free yeah. newspaper. Yes, yes. Yeah. Which people used to always ask us, well, how do you make any money? You know, if the you know, if you give it away free and I was like, do you honestly think the Seattle times makes their money on the quarter that you put in the box? Is that really <laughs> what you think is going on? Isn't that right? But apparently people did. So yeah, that's when I started, uh, I, I'd, I'd gotten, uh, really into, uh, punk rock. Uh, I was of that generation, you know, I uh, was graduating in the late seventies and, uh, you know, I was really in line with that. It was a very exciting time, uh, I, in my opinion, the most exciting time in my life uh, for music. So, so you're you're not at that point thinking anything about TV or broadcasting. No. But somebody comes stumbling into uh, the newsroom there at the Rocket and mm-hmm. poses a question to the group. Yes, this was the most significant phone call of my life, uh, which was that uh, uh, a man named Jan Nickman, who you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, called the rocket. And uh, we had this fictional character whose name was Johnny Renton, like, you know, Johnny Rotten. We called it Johnny Renton. Yeah. And, and that was me. I wrote that column, but uh, uh, under that pseudonym. And he's like, hey, could we have the Johnny uh, Renton uh, come on and do a weekly uh, commentary about, I'm doing a show about, you know, we're going to have local bands on and do uh, music videos. And, and, and they all, this was before MTV. And was, Johnny, doing- was Johnny Renton, a, were you writing humor or was it serious um, music critique? It, the first few paragraphs were always uh, this kind of, I, you know, it was, it, the idea was this character hung out with all these rock stars. And so whoever was in town, it'd be like, hey, uh, I was just, you know, hanging out with, uh, you know, Joan Jett. You know, whoever, The Clash, you know, dropped by and we, you know, did, you know, did, you know so it was always this ridiculous to, although I, I mentioned Joan Jett because uh, she picked it up and she was like is this for real did this happen you know like, she, like she I don't remember know. that yeah she didn't know it was right anyway and then then it would just be sort of like you know whatever was happening in town and be like you know this way and then be you know and then the bands mentioned would be in like bold letters you know and it was a thing where when it came out all the musicians would you know just see if they were in the, the Johnny Renton column so it was a kind of a big deal you know, and but the the part of it was that, that that we would never reveal who was who was writing it, and so yeah. I said, you know, well, I you know, uh, they were like, could you come over and do a commentary? And I was like, uh, yeah, but I you know I can't I we you know I can't say I'm Johnny Renton, but I can say you know my own name, and uh, and uh, they gave me this two minute segment that was called the rocket report right and and the name of the show was rev rev which stood for rock entertainment video and and that's when uh, you know mtv was was not really quite a thing yet right i mean that's right and rock entertainment video was a novel idea it was it was and it was very significant that there was no uh mtv because that was the only source at that time on television of seeing uh rock videos so the show was gigantically popular almost immediately 
And I had this two-minute forum where I started doing, you know, I, I went, well, first thing was they said, well, we'll build you a set. And, you know, it could be like, you know, like a little clubhouse. They were suggesting that I have like this little clubhouse. And I was like, well, I don't know. So I went back and I asked the designers at uh, the Rocket. And this was a very, very significant moment. Uh, I said, what do you think the set should look like? And they said, you know, those guys over there probably have a whole bunch of electronic effects that they never use for anything. And I, I would suggest that you don't have a physical set, make it, a, you know, an electronic set and you can, you can stand inside, you know, the electronics. And, and I didn't understand how to do that, but I kind of asked around and I learned how to use a green screen and I kind of, and I told the people there that I wanted to do that. And they said, well, that would look like, you know, these car dealers like Glenn Grant or, you know, Cal Worthington, where they would stand in front and the cars would go behind. Remember those kind of ads, you know? Sure. Cal Worthington here for Worthington Dodge. Friends, when you come into Worthington Dodge, you'll find this sticker right on the windshield of every car. Ignore price stickers, ask for our discount. And I said, well, yeah, but it's not going to be cars. It's going to be images. And they were like, well, I don't know. And so we started doing it and it you know it didn't look like anything that had ever been on tv to yeah, mind i remember that I they also I, and they also they had a, uh, a a deal with this uh, clothing retailer called kitschy coo that you know uh, sold new wave clothes and they were like you know you should dress up in new wave clothes and and the people again at the rocket said you know when you're on tv and you're not wearing a suit you look like an idiot you, any, anyone who's not wearing a suit on TV looks ridiculous. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, they got a point. And so I had this just crappy ass, you know, look, uh, uh, when someone did a review of it, uh, they said that I wore a, 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 a suit that looked like the suit that you wear when you're going into interview as a job for, for the mail room for stock boy. It looked like, it looked like that. I mean, it just was this, you know, white shirt, this tie and the suit that, just did, it was just too small for me and it was ridiculous well it's kind of like yeah. the, you must have inspired like rick ocasek and some of these other yeah, no, people I, yeah it just worked you know it really worked yeah and they they little by little you know started moving my segment from the end of the show to farther to the front and then pretty soon it was on right after the first commercial every they show. were they were front loading you from the newsroom of the rocket magazine this is the rocket report with john keister good evening the subject tonight is heavy metal the single most popular form of rock in the greater seattle area what is it that drives thousands of young, angelic-faced boys in our calm, tree-lined suburbs to start wearing sadomasochistic ornaments? And it got to be this, you know, Jan was kind of baffled because he thought that the music videos were going to be the big draw of the show. And he said, everybody, all that anyone wants to talk about is that segment that you're doing, which I was like, whoa, you know. How come some wimpy guy who can never get a girl straps on a guitar and some spandex pants and all of a sudden he's fighting them off? So along that, about the, along that time, and correct me if I'm wrong, but, uh, uh, and I've heard Ross Schaefer and I have talked about this, uh, they're doing this show called Almost Live that has started up. Yeah. And, and Ross says, and then they said, oh, we want you to put this guy on the show too. Yeah. And, and he, he was opposed to the idea. They said, who's this guy? We don't want, yeah. we don't, he, he, we don't think he, what does he know about anything? And it was yeah. you. And, yeah. and, um, and so you had to kind of come in and they said, and, well, you should tell, but Ross said, and I said, so what do you want to do? And you go, well, uh, I don't know. Uh, I'll come up with something. Yeah. And, and then they, they're just rolling their eyes, him and Jim Sharp. And 
Yeah. And then, as he tells it, you come out and you do your very first bit. And, and I yes. think you called the segment Assignment Danger. Yes, I did. And, and they, it knocked him out. The common people of Seattle have never known what lies behind these heavily fortified walls. Until now. Jeez, this is the best thing on the show. The thing uh, about Ross, and this is a very significant thing, was that he uh, had, he came from a sports background. He was a was a football player, yeah. And uh, he uh, show people are not like athletic people, but athletic people, uh, if you can prove that, I mean, they're they're hard on you to begin, but if you can prove you're good for the team, they get behind you right away. Yeah. And Ross was, was very generous in, in, he, uh, was not intimidated. Uh, he, you know, he was, he was the host of the show and he, he gave me free reign and he, and he also backed me up when I needed backup. And, uh, uh, but that's because, uh, I, I wrote for him and I, and I decided to come, I mean, uh, the kind of character that I decided to play was one that I, I worked really well uh, with the kind of punk sensibility that I was coming from, which was that I played this kind of put upon loser. Mm -hmm. uh, and Ross was like this dashing, good looking guy. And I was the guy who was always, you know, being, you know, just everything bad would happen to me to the point that I'd be walking down the street and people would come up to me and go like, Hey, you're, you're way better. You're, you're better than that guy. He shouldn't be like, you know, <laughs> well, it was a really a, a, a really smart juxtaposition, even if it was initially just kind of an accident because it, there was a yeah. great contrast between you. And I guess Ross realized, cause he's smart about this, that uh, rather than feel competitive about it, he just knows what, whatever's good for the show is good for me. So yeah, yeah I, I want him to, to succeed. Yes, yes. And you know, I'll tell you something. I had really started to question my involvement with the rocket because some stuff had happened that I was very upset with and and I started looking at these guys as these these, you know, hipsters who were much would much rather be involved in an artistically valid failure than than success. It was really strange. Mm. And uh Ross uh was 100% the idea was to be a success and to make something out of something. And, 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 uh, you know, when I was starting on the show, these hipsters, were like, I can't believe you're doing that stupid show with that moron. You know, and, and I was yeah. like, you know, guys, he's a nice guy. And not only that, you know, I started thinking like, what, you know, these guys, you know, I don't, you know, Ross, we, we were going someplace and, you know, I'd never been in a limo before and we had to get, go from place to place. And Ross was like, no, we'll take a limo. We'll take the limo. And we jumped in the back and we're gone. And I was like, wow. And he goes, you know, John, there's no reason. He said, you know, this is the way to go. And there's no reason that you and I can't go this way, you know, from now on. You know, this is the way to go. And he was really investing in success. And I thought, you know, I like this guy better than I like these hipsters that I'm working with who kind of held me at arm's length, you know, uh, you know, to begin with anyway, because I didn't go to Evergreen. I went to the UW, you know, it's right, a weird, right. weird little dynamic there. You know, I wasn't from, you know, New York, even though at that time it was gospel that you had to go to New York or, yeah. or San Francisco to make it. And I'd been traveling there enough in the late seventies in, in New York. I had a friend who lived in the Lower East Side in what's called the Alphabet Jungle. 
but I, I, I kind of had a, a working knowledge of Manhattan, which kind of came in handy later. Yeah. So now the, let's just jump ahead a little bit. You're, you, you're pretty much full time uh, yeah. and almost live. And somewhere along the way, I met you. Yeah. And, and uh, I don't remember. I can when, tell you, I can tell you what that was. Well, I think I know when it was, but you tell, okay. you go first. Well, uh, I'd been doing these assignment dangers, and then at one point, my car was stolen. I had a really beautiful 1965 Mustang, and I did a bit about uh, uh, the five stages of death, like denial, anger, bargaining, you know, yeah, about, yeah, yeah. about losing my car. And at one point, uh, uh, I wanted to do a bit where I went into an insurance agency to see if I could get money uh, for my car. That was uh, the premise, and I was like talking to this photographer, Mike Boydston, who uh, we have a lot of history with. Yeah, his and, name has come up a lot in these yes, yes. podcasts. And, uh, uh, and he said, well, you know, there's this guy uh, here who's really funny, and he does uh, uh, this, uh, you know, he, he works, uh, you know, in the promotions department, and, and, I, and you, you ought to talk to him. And, and, uh, and I, that's when I asked you, you know, I said, hey, would you want to be in this bit? Uh, you know, and, uh, and you played uh at at a cubicle you played the uh insurance agent that i was going to see and that and and uh you know and it was like you gave me i remember it was sort of like well you know uh based on your uh the the premiums you paid you get to have a pick from our happy bag and i was like what and i reached in the bag and pulled out a a a, a plastic ant and you go, Oh, you got a giant ant, you know? And it was like, like, that's what I was going to get for my car. Yeah. And I have no memory like, of that. I have no memory. Okay, of that. Well, that's what, when what I, I remember I, what yeah. I remember first time, maybe not the first time we met, but the first time I got to know you a bit. And I, and I, I really, I thought, God, I really like this guy. And maybe you remember this, John, we King TV was uh, in an existential crisis they had, they were, their ratings had dro dropped on, on the news. Uh, there were uh, rumblings that they were going to get new management and there was all this stuff. And so they brought in these, this company that gave uh, certain employees some sort of psychological test. Oh, yes, yes. And, and then after everybody's test was completed, and these, they kind of plucked various employees. Some of them were management, of course, but. Yeah. They, they they identified who they thought were other key employees to go to this company retreat up to Orcas Island at yes. a place called Rosario. Yes. And uh and and you went along too and I was part of it and the, some some other yeah. folks. I I I remember more just going out we found a gymnasium we played ba basketball yes, for a yes, while with the locals. Like yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and we were brought up as the entertainment. We were just a brand new show and they were like why don't you entertain you know, the people and we, and we did a bit up there entertaining and, and it was like, they were putting people into all these different yeah. psychological categories. And we came up with a special one as a joke for Jean Anderson, which was just nice. Yeah. She's so nice. And was always like, you know, cause Jean was the queen of Seattle and everybody was yeah. You know, yeah. in the news business. The day never comes when a reporter can finally say, well, I've learned it all. I understand everything. Because every day brings new stories to tell. And I remember so, the the test was you'd have to answer these questions like, uh, "Are you a go getter? Are you uh, yeah. do you make decisions, or do you, would you rather let somebody else make decisions?" Right. All of these kinds of, and then based on that, you would you would be identified as one of four uh, four types. There was yes. the driver, 
Yes. The driver type was a hard charging management guy. Come on, guys, let's get yeah. this done, sort of guy. Then there was the expressive type. Right. Kind of more of a talkative sort of person, uh, right. really eager to roll their sleeves up and get the jobs done. Then yeah. there was the analytical types, and those would be people maybe that worked in the, you know, the accounting department. And then this, the category that I fell into was amiable. Yes. Which, which was yeah. sort of like nice, like you just mentioned. Yeah, and you, there was just you and and I believe there was one other person. I forget. D.W. Clark. Yes, yeah, you yeah. were the lone amiables. Yeah. Later, later in my career, I had to take one of those things, and when they were, you know, putting us into the categories, I looked over at one of them and I said, "Well, they got that right. There's all the assholes over there." <laughs> like, you know, yeah, they didn't want to label it as such, but that's yeah, really know, the well, way there, it broke there's, down. There's all the complete assholes, and there was like John. You're over there. And I was like, oh, I'm one of them. I see. I get it. You know, that's, you know, okay. So at, so at some point, and I, and I, I this can become well, yeah, a, no, this become a marathon, but I, I, cause I'm having a blast talking to you, but, okay. uh, but let's, let's get to where Ross uh, suddenly leaves the show. He's got a yeah. great opportunity. No one can yeah. begrudge him that. And so then there begins this, this period of time where, gee, who, who are we going to get to be the host of the show now? Yeah, and uh, and so they try out a bunch of people, right? And and I always and and I always felt, um, I mean, they tried people from out of town. Yeah, I remember Tony Ventrella. Tony they Ventrella, had me yeah. do one. I yeah. hosted a show, and it was just funny to me, especially in hindsight, that the most obvious choice was sitting right in front of him in plain sight, and yeah. uh, and eventually it worked out the way it should have. Because well, yeah. uh, you no, you were the guy that knew Seattle like the back of your hand, and had was a font of great source material because you knew all of this stuff about uh, this town, and and it was it became more of a local show when you finally took over than it really was. It was more of a, I don't mean to belittle anybody, but it was more of a standard sticky sh show that could have been done in Denver as easily as easily as you know any place yeah there was some localness to it for sure but but um it it became intensely local and 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 neighborhood and city focused when you became the host of the show yes but r real quick i was uh getting more and more angry that they weren't that i was like well wait are you saying you can't make a decision that it's going to be me and they're like well we need to test out all these and i was like all right, fine. You know, and then I just went down to LA and, uh, you know, cause Ross was like, you know, come on down here. And, uh, and I went down there for a few weeks. Now was it tough to sell this act uh, in the beginning? I mean, it was a record label anxious to take this on because, uh, I would think it would be a little bit tough. You know, our record company, every record company out there, that's their main thing is to sell their records. And I'd never seen anything like it, you know, cause Joan River, he had taken over for Joan Rivers right, and right. she had this incredible, you know, set up there. And it was like, I mean, it was just everything. It was strange to me because it was exactly the way I imagined Hollywood would be. And there was all these stars everywhere and yeah. playboy playmates and everything. And, and, uh, and out the window of the office, the, the Hollywood sign was right there, which it's, it's almost, it's very difficult to, un, to over uh, state what a significant thing that it's is. It's a surreal thing when you yeah, actually go come there. from all over the world to, you know, and I'm, I'm like, I can't believe 
I'm in this beautiful office that used to belong to Joan Rivers, you know. I did the osteoporosis benefit this afternoon and got a stooping ovation. I was very proud. <laughs> and out the window is the Hollywood sign. I said, I can't, I can't believe this. And there's all, meeting all these people. And then King is having a fits that I'm down there. And when I come back, they immediately say, well, we want you to be the, <laughs> we want you to be the host. And I was like, you know, at the time, you were actually weighing whether you wanted yeah. to move to move to yes. Hollywood and, right. or and, to come back. Thought, yeah, and I I, um, I knew uh, Marilee was pregnant with twins at the time. And I also understood that when I was down there, that I could tell that this was going to be a 24-hour 24, 24 job. I didn't want to fall into that trap that I saw a lot of men fall into, particularly men in our society. It's not just limited to them, but this idea that, if your career goes really well and you're making lots of money, it's it's okay that you're never seeing your kids because or your family because you're really helping your family because you're making lots of money. And I, yeah. and I was like, I didn't give them a great lifestyle. Yeah. yeah, I didn't want to be that guy, you know, and and uh, so I came back. Yes, I, uh, you know, had a rocky start because. I had interviewed a lot of people uh, for the, the newspapers that I had worked for, but I'd done that in the context of print where you just sort of sit around mm -hmm. and you, you know, you, you go this way and that you just sort of explore different ideas, but that doesn't work on TV, you know, and I, I was used to an interview style that was less focused and, and whatnot, but. Uh, yeah, basically you were asked to take over the show that Ross was doing. Yeah. And then we had, we had the band and it was yeah. basically interview based. And it was like, it, I, you know, it was, we had already run through most of the uh, celebrities in town that were interview worthy, all the sports figures. and whatnot. Yeah. So as soon as I became host of the show, the sh Ross's show faltered and it went off the air. So I thought, well, you know, I dodged that bullet, you know, it took a while to get our footing. And then at the, at the end of that year, I, I could see everybody's resumes were flying. Joe and Nancy had taken off for right, uh, Los right. Angeles. Uh, and and everybody really, thought it was clever to say almost live, almost dead. I mean, yeah, yeah, I think yeah. everybody knew that there, there was an ax about to fall. Everybody yeah. sensed it. Mm -hmm. And then the lucky happenstance was that some everybody might want to take credit for it, but somebody said, let's make this a half hour show. Let's move it to in it to immediately in front of and adjacent to Saturday night live. Yeah. Where there, there's an established comedy audience anyway, and out of the, instead of this wasteland on Sunday at six or whatever it was. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and it be, and the show became your show. Then it was yeah. comedy. It, it, more jokes there, there was no band anymore you didn't have to right. interview people anymore yeah and it just found its legs and took off yes it did it took a little while but then once it once it started to take off there was almost no limit to how high it could go because there was no significant competition and we were in a great time slot and snl was fortunately for us having a real there that yeah. was their real doldrums yeah and, they were foundering at that time for sure. and so, so people started complaining that they had to well we have to wait a half an hour to see uh, snl but then that stopped and then after and then uh, you know after a little while they were like oh thank god this is there and people got in the habit of watching us and then snl up to uh weekend update and then yeah. that, that was like a solid hour of pretty decent comedy 
and, and it, it was a formula that really worked. You mentioned a uh, assignment danger piece that uh, you, you remembered me as a, an insurance uh, adjuster yeah. or something. But the first time I remember working with you was another assignment danger. It was uh, the Broadmoor piece. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, 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 and I, and I, I might've told that story on another podcast, but basically your idea was that there is this, uh, secretive place that uh, the average yeah. person never gets to see inside of because yeah. it's for, only for the wealthy and the well-appointed. It's a gated yes. community with high walls. And your, your, your premise was, I'm going to go in there and see what it's all about. Yes, that's right. And Broadmoor, just, you know, for the record, was a neighborhood. In, I lived, you know, a few miles away from it, but it was famous in our neighborhood because they didn't allow Jews or blacks right. to right. live there, right. and which, you know, I mean, and, and they had armed guards, you know, to, you know, around, you know, the entrance and stuff. And I just thought it was just this despicable place. Yeah. And, uh, and I, and I was really into doing something that would, you know, take those guys down a peg. And so, yeah, we were like, and so I, I filmed myself. I actually crawled over the wall and then crawled right back. So I wouldn't get arrested. <laughs> I know. It was a great shot. Yeah. It's a little bit, a little bit dangerous doing that. If I'm yeah. Yeah. One of those so, armed guards yeah. had seen you. Right. Exactly. And so I love, I love taking part in that piece. Yeah. One of and then your we, other... went down, we said, well, well, where, what's going to, what, what are we going to find when we're in there? And we drove down to Kent where there's all these, you know, just farms and just yeah. kind of dilapidated houses. And we went to this one house that we thought was good. And, and we knocked on the door and there was nobody home. And then we asked the neighbors, like, are they, and they were like, Oh, you know, what are you doing? And they're, Oh, that, yeah, it'd be all right. And so we went back and they had sheep back. Oh, it was just the perfect location. Yeah. And we so just, that was, yeah. that was the punchline of the bit is that turns out Broadmoor, is even more rural than South King County. Yes, right. maybe that's why they don't want you to see what's going on in there. Yeah, very I funny. Bit. I heard, I heard about that bit a lot. Yeah, me too. I'm sorry, I interrupted your game. I thought it was. Hey, wait a minute! Wait a minute! Where do you think you're going? Well, I was going to go back out. I'm sorry, I didn't want to. I, 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 I didn't Look, mean. Look, to... you've seen Broadmoor. You can never leave here. Never. <laughs> But I think maybe the bit you heard uh, as much about, if not more, was the Ballard Driving Academy. Yeah, uh huh. It was uh, that's an interesting bit because uh, there was a um, the kernel of the idea was given to me when I was uh, checking out at a grocery store in my neighborhood, and they were like, "Hey, I really like your show," and I had this idea. It's like, you know, like a Ballard driving school. And it'd be like, you know how when you start with driving, they like, you know, check your, uh, you know, check your seatbelt. And then you could just like throw it out and have it dragging on the ground and yeah. you know, keep you in that kind of stuff. And that was sort of the kernel of it. And I said, yeah, that's a really good idea. And now with a special message from the Ballard Driving Academy, here's Orly Torgerson. Here at the Ballard Driving Academy, for over 35 years, we've been teaching people to drive just like they live in Ballard. Welcome to the Ballard Driving Academy. Thank you. All right, now before we start, please adjust your seatbelt. Okay, good. Uh, now check your left turn signal. Okay, now leave that on all, the, all day. Make sure that never goes off. Okay. All right? Everything seems to check out. Let's go into traffic. Whoa, whoa, where's the fire? What? Well, how fast are you going? Uh, Ten. Bring it down to seven. So there you go. That's as fast as we go in Bally. Okay. Now, let me see how many cars you're holding up. Six, seven, 
Eight. All right. Eight times. You passed. And then, of all people, Bob Nelson, which it was the first bit on the air that he was in. He he became he was the driver, and we did it. And that and you're, and actually, you're the driver. You're the uh, guy I'm, giving them the test. Yeah, and I'm the driving instructor, and I'm like, you know. Uh, telling him to, you know, like weave in and out of traffic and be slow and block cars and all this sort of stuff. And, and uh, we did all this stuff. And uh, yeah, that became probably the most popular bit. Wouldn't you like to be a Ballard driver too? It was great. It was but, great. Yeah, that we ever done, yeah. But you did a lot of studio bits uh, that really had your stamp on it and very Seattle centric. Yeah. Uh, how Seattle are you? Welcome to How Seattle Are You? The game show that separates the long time natives from the late coming transplants. First question now, what is your name and where did you go to high school? Arnie Arneson Ballard. Good for nine points. Nine points there for Arnie. Carol Nordstrom Lakeside. Gotta give you ten. Ten points for that. And you, sir. Todd Miller, South Pasadena. Sorry, big zero on that. Next question now. What is your current occupation? Uh, I'm a commercial fisherman. Nine big points for Arnie and uh, you. I developed software. Another nine points there and... Uh, I'm a bike messenger and I play guitar for a band called House of Bitches. Now that's worth a big ten. And yeah. uh, Pike versus Pine. Based uh -huh. on the simple idea that most a lot of people just don't know which... Yeah. Which store is on Pike and which is on Pine, and you turned it into a game show, and that yeah. was really memorable. The first contestant to get five correct answers is the winner, and as you know, we have been waiting for over three years for a winner, but maybe tonight. So let's say hello to our first contestant, longtime Seattle resident and Starbucks employee, Dave Thompson. Dave, welcome to Pike or Pine. Thanks. Here's the first question. Okay, that really good Thai restaurant near Broadway, is that on Pike oh. or Pine? Oh, I know that one. I know that one. You it's know on, what I mean? Oh, yes, really yes, 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 yes. Is that Pike or Pine? Oh, God, I can see it. Um, uh, it's it's either Pike or Pine. Right, that's the point of the game. Yeah, game. Is um, it Pike oh, or Pine? God, come on. Oh, I'm sorry. Time is up. we got to move to the next contestant. Sorry, Dave. Hello. Next contestant. Welcome. Longtime Seattle resident and Ivor's counterperson, Carrie Davis. Hi. Carrie, here's your question. Okay, you're on Capitol Hill heading downtown. Now, which street do you take to go straight down? Not the one that, you know, that gets all weird and goes into the convention center oh, and yeah, turns. Yeah, and which one yeah, goes no, straight down? I know down? that because it's on, it's either on Pike or Pine. Um, okay. Oh, oh, yeah. Okay, no, no, okay. If you're facing Seattle, uh -huh. um, it's uh, the one closest to the Space Needle. Okay, is that Pike or Pine? Um, it's the north one. It's the one that's farthest north. Okay, I need a street name, Carrie. Oh, Pike or Pine? Oh, oh, Pine? It is fine. Good. One correct answer. All right. Yes, very, very, uh, um, that was, uh, um, yeah, Pike or Pine. Like, no, everybody in Seattle gets those confused. And, uh, and yeah, that was very, yeah. It was, it was brilliant. Was yeah. The, uh, the bit that occurred on the Almost Live show more than any other was Billy Kwan, which was mm -hmm. your idea. And it was really uh, a cartoon as much as anything. And, yeah. The, the the story trajectory was always the same. It always turned out the same. But yeah. damn, it was funny. It's time for Mind Your Manners with Billy Kwan. Today's episode, Bottle Rockets of Fury. You are disturbing the peaceful tranquility of our neighborhood. You hear me? All right, that's it. <laughs> 
am so angry I could explode. Oh, you are exploding. Try this. Yeah, I, I, and just to give you an idea of, uh, uh, I, I, the first time I saw it, and when that was being edited, I thought, boy, we are really onto something with this. Uh, I think we did too many of them, to be quite honest. Yeah, you know, we, I it, think they were in the 20s. I think they were. Yeah, really, um, but uh, when when it was fresh, we were the, I would submit we were the only people that were doing these parodies of the, the kind of style of. Bruce Lee. That I grew up, yeah, yeah. That I grew up watching and that were playing at this, there was a cinema in my neighborhood called the Toyo Cinema that played. Uh, Japanese movies that I used to go watch these Japanese movies and and uh, Daryl who was Billy Kwan knew those movies as well and we were basing it off that uh, we should say that Daryl is Daryl Suto yeah. who was who's in real life was a a, a shooter a photog yes. and an editor at King TV right and he right. always seemed reluctant to be in them it wasn't his bag he didn't want to be on TV yeah but uh, but he was great at it it yeah, he, he, he might, it might have seemed that way, but I believe he really did really like it. <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah, I, I got the lucky job of, of dubbing his voice. Uh, yes, that's very right. Very poorly, yeah. So and To give you an idea of, of, of the great esteem we were held <laughs> to at King, uh, the, um, uh, there, was a, uh, there was an award, an international award, it was called the Monitor Awards, the International Monitor Awards, and there was, uh, uh, there was a, uh, uh, a segment that evening had done, which I think had to do with, um, uh, the invention of, uh, stem cell transplants in, which was invented in Seattle, and, you know, got the Nobel prize and, uh, and Blake Hurley, uh, who, you know, and, sure. and some other people, uh, went to New York to Carnegie hall, uh, to accept the award and they're all in tuxes and they're in at Carnegie Hall and they did not win, but Billy Kwan won. <laughs> but, uh, somehow it had gotten submitted and uh, and none of us were there, but all the evening guys in their tuxes yeah. accepted the international monitor award on our behalf, you know, but they would, they, they, there's no I way. You know that story. That's great. Yeah. King would never, you know, they would never send us there. They, in, as a matter of fact, it wasn't until we became national on comedy central that we even were even got any recognition from the awards. Cause the people in New York would send like bouquets of flowers and, uh, yeah. you know, and things like that. I know I'm sounding somewhat petulant about this, but I swear it was it, it was as if they were like, we didn't need any promotion. It was like, well, you guys do fine on your own. Oh, yeah. No, we never this show never got much promotion, no. much notice. And it was and it was really treated with disdain yeah, it was by, like, the, by the people in the other departments, particularly the news department. Yeah, it was oh, like those was like, little clowns. Down yeah, it was the like hall. a pain in the ass. And we were winning. Yeah award after award as you know best show best local show in america and we won the record number of those and uh, you yeah. know i i did a segment called alien gumbies when i yeah. uh, which was another famous and you and joe guppy yeah yeah and i found yes first there was alien then aliens now the most horrifying event in motion picture history 
alien gumbies. In space, no one can hear you say, Pokey, hey Pokey, Pokey, come on, hey Pokey, Pokey, let's go for a ride. Hey, hey, and I found out like, hey, they submitted that and it's, you get to go to New Orleans to, uh, you know, you're up for this award. And I was like, what? And we went to New Orleans and, uh, and we, I was given the award by Oprah Winfrey, who was just oh. starting her career, you know, and, uh, and was down there. And this is when Arnaud's, which was that place, we've gone to world famous Arnaud's and switched out the coffee to Folgers, you know, was that that place. This morning, we're secretly switching their fresh brewed coffee with dark, sparkling Folgers crystals. Can these people tell the difference? And we were always complaining about how we didn't have equipment and stuff like that and then suddenly i find out we're gonna we're all gonna eat at our nose and the bill came to like 10 grand it was like this you know huge enormous and i was like man you know we could have used some microphones you know like the, you know we could i mean it's like we can we can have dinner here for 10 grand but we can't get microphones and cables that'll work you know well, that's that, that's the thing about almost live that show is how it it really, uh, it, it really shone, given the fact that uh, it was given really no spotlight, no money, no attention. And it's, like you said, it sounds like we're complaining. But in a way, because we weren't getting much uh, attention, yeah. it, it gave us license to do more stuff. It's nobody that, was nobody was really monitoring the show. And right. was, you're, you're right. Yeah, it, it was totally a double-edged sword. Yeah, we didn't get any funding, but then again, we didn't get uh, oversight. Remember the time you went to the Emmy Awards and uh, and they and almost live won. I may maybe it was a commentary you did or something. No, it was the show. The show it, had won, no. and so usually at any award ceremony in broadcasting, they will play a clip. Yes, uh, uh, representing. A moment from the show yes. for which or the commercial that won the award and they chose a clip of you and the, the late wonderful kathy gertson yes uh, at the time como tv had yes. a slogan and i maybe maybe i don't have this right but i think their slogan was whatever it takes yes whatever it takes mm -hmm. and so the clip that and, and the winner is almost live and you're making your way up to it yeah, these guys you know they could have picked any segment from the show any segment but yeah, they it's a half hour the one, show. They, they picked the one where it's like uh oh uh, uh como's slogan in order to set this up yep uh kathy gertson was famous <clears throat> because she had the biggest breasts of anybody in 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 all of television she was yes. just enormously gifted in that category and uh <laughs> You know, that was, and it was that was very artfully expressed, John. Right, and it was a thing that people talked about. People talked about that. You know, it was uh, a you know, it was a topic of conversation among the various. You know, well, man, I was I was over. You know, blah blah blah. And Kathy Gertson was there. My God, you know. And uh, anyway, so yeah, so they picked this clip, and it actually was Ross saying it. But I had written the joke. I was there. Uh, receiving the award because Ross was already in Los Angeles. Como's new slogan is whatever it takes. I'll tell you what it take for me. It would take Kathy Gertson in a halter top. Okay, that was yeah. the joke. The room exploded with uh, with laughter and applause. I mean, I've never heard something kill yeah, the way yeah. that killed, you know. So you get your award, you accept the, the award, award, you say a few words, and then, yeah. you, then you're obligated to go out into the uh, adjoining hallway where you're going to well, get your picture taken. Yeah, and then I sat back down in the thing, and, and all of a sudden, this guy is like, hey, 
who wrote that joke about uh, Kathy Gerson? That was you, wasn't it? And I was like, yeah. And I, I come to find out it was her ex-husband. It, it was kind of, and he poured a, his drink over my head. Pretty big glass. So that story then took on a life of its own. So by the time, you know, people kept asking me about it. And, and the thing is, I got along with Kathy. I, I, you know, I used to hang out with her a bit. Oh, yeah. you know, she was great. She's a wonderful person. Yeah. She's and then we could never be seen. To, you know, we'd like be at these uh, charitable events and our eyes would meet. And we'd just like, you know, like go, you know, different directions, you know, and years for years, if, you know, if our cross, our paths crossed, you know, we had to just, you know, divert. And then one day I'm at some event, you know, uh, and, you know, getting ready to do something. And all of a sudden somebody's pinching my ass and I'm like, whoa. And I, and I turn around and it's Kathy Gertzen and she winks and walks away. And I thought, oh, okay, I guess we're cool. You know, it was very funny. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. but that story, you know, got retold so many times that by the time I went to work for uh, Cairo, some people called me aside and said, hey, listen, uh, I don't uh, mean to you know, private, I heard this thing about, there was this Emmy meeting and, and you got drunk and you, you pulled Kathy Gertzen's top off and like and exposed then, then her, her, hus and her husband pulled a gun on you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It got to be, I said, no, 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 it's not like that. You know? <laughs> I gotta, I gotta bring this cow into the barn at some point. So yeah, I want to yeah, talk sure. about some bits really quick. Okay. Uh, and uh, I don't mean to be quick. Uh, you know, they just canceled as we're recording this, the long-running TV show Cops. And yes. That, yeah. was, uh, that was fodder for a lot of really funny local bits that mm -hmm. you mostly authored. It was Cops in Mercer Island, Cops yeah. in Redmond, yeah. Cops uh, in Kent, you name it. Yeah. And I was on YouTube the other day, John, and I, I, saw, I was looking for Cops in Leavenworth. Yes. It was one of the few times we went out of town to, re to do a bit. And yeah. I had written Cops in Leavenworth, the only one of those cops things I wrote. And and on YouTube, Cops in Leavenworth is located between a Speedwalker episode and yeah. Cops in Leavenworth. Between the two of those is Johnny Cash singing Hurt. I hurt myself. <laughs> Man, what kind of, to see what kind of algorithms are they using there at at yeah. YouTube these days. Away. But it was fun to find that old Cops and Leavenworth piece again. We shot it, as it turns out, in our final season. Yeah, we had a problem down at Uli's restaurant the other day. Somebody had a little too much sauerkraut, so we had to clear the place out for about an hour. Happy hour. So things usually start to happen. Leader Holson One, come in, please. Yeah. We've got a 417 in progress downtown. Okay, I'm on it. Donka Shane. Better turn on the siren. I remember we even got some of the Leavenworth locals to play the bad boys theme on their alphorns and accordions. Pretty cool. Almost Live coming to Leavenworth was a pretty big deal. Yeah, I'll tell you, man, when I, uh, you know, when I do the real intelligent thing at one in the morning and I like, you know, uh, start, you know, ego surfing, you know, the Internet, 
you know, I come to these old bits, you know, I'll look at the comments and lately I've been seeing, you know, uh, comments that say, man, this stuff is so funny. It should have been on TV. This should have been a TV show. Like the idea, well, that's a good that, idea. It, that it was some web series that we did that they're unaware that we were on comedy central or, you know, whatever. Anyway, it's, there's so many, there's so much great stuff. You know, when you look back on it, you think, Oh my God, I forgot about that one. Forgot about that one. One of the ones though, I thought just nailed it because it was a perfect piece. It led to a great ending. uh, And the premise was, was just stellar. And it was uh, one, I think you titled college terminator. Uh, yes, yes. And I just thought, God, that is that's the perfect piece. If every one of our bits was like that, yeah, that, uh, this it, show would just be uh, heralded uh, worldwide. And and the premise of it was that uh, this Terminator guy, which I got to play like the Arnold Schwarzenegger character, he comes from the future, and it turns out that they had monitored college parties way back in the early 80s. Right. And, uh, and so he's coming uh, to exact... Uh, retribution and, and revenge and, and, and to dispatch right. everybody from this party because of what they, of a vows that they had made and broken. Right, exactly. Rachel Davis. Yeah? I will kill you now. What? Why? I come from a place in the future where we monitor college parties. Listen very carefully. In 1973, you made a vow. Hey, hey, guys, listen, listen. Hey, if I ever wear like a suit and tie and become one of those money-grubbing corporate pigs, would you do me a favor? Just shoot me, okay? Right. Just, yeah, just shoot me. Right on. Now I am here to honor your request. Hey, look, I was in college, all right? I didn't know anything about the real world. Why don't you grow up? Give me a break. That's a rationalization. That's what the other people said. The thing I liked about that bit uh, uh, was that uh, the idea of your younger self talking to your older self, that your younger self, before you have any responsibilities, you know, and any sort of, uh, you know, things that you need to no life experience yet yeah that you make these bold statements like you know hey if i just become some money-grubbing corporate pig just kill me and uh and then then if i ever vote republican just if i vote republican or if i do anything like my mother you know the uh, that would be uh, tracy and nancy doing that or you know and so it's all it's all people who uh you know made all these ridiculous vows in college and then uh there's this, you know, terrifying Terminator robot who's coming and killing them because they violated the vows that they made in college. Right. And and I, uh, when I find out what it is, as I'm the money grubbing capitalist, I I I say to you, the Terminator, why don't you grow up? You know, I I didn't, I was in college and I didn't understand what life was like. And you say that's a rationalization. That's what the other people say and you press it to the point that you do kill everybody. And then there's finally the last. And as you're dying, as you're dying, you'd say one more thing. What about Ray? What, whatever happened to Ray? Right. And then you flash back and it's Bob Nelson plays Ray. And he goes, man, if I ever stop smoking dope, just kill me. And then, and then you kill me. And then there's a transition and suddenly it's Bob going like, wow. So you like blew them all away, man. (laughs) 
it coming. They were all slimy sellouts. Not like you, Ray. So you've been here 20 years. And Bob is still smoking dope. Yeah, he's, he's the one guy that dope. kept, yeah. that yeah. kept his front. I just thought that was a great piece. Yeah, the one guy who didn't, yeah, he kept smoking dope in his, in, his, in his basement. And that was it. And that's the guy who lived. When it and comes that, to uh, when it yeah. comes to a, a bit that I wish I had created, uh, I, I can't think of one smarter than the lame list. And now the lame list, or what's week this week? Brought to you by America's heavy metal community. Lame. They're finally going to show nipples in a Batman movie, but it turns out it's Batman's nipples. Lame. Oh, oh. lame. <laughs> Mark on your neck is an age spot! Inexcusably lame. Dog lame. Extremely lame. Mired in a sweating mass of lameness. All of the really good porn on the net you have to pay for! Lame! It was a it was a wonderful way to do topical humor yes. really quick, and you cover a lot of areas. Uh, you could do the uh, news of the day, local right. happenings, uh, news about personalities. Uh, the lame list. How did you think of that? that that's just well, great. Uh, you know, um, you know, I had um, uh, these uh, guys from uh, the Rocket that were we we uh, were very we we covered the heavy heavy metal scene, which turned into the grunge scene, and you know the Seattle music scene and all that kind of stuff. And I, you know, I knew Jeff Gilbert. He was our reviewer, and he was yeah. very, he was the guy who organized the lame list. Guy. He could he could always get the people from Soundgarden and Alice in Chains and all those people. He could yeah. he could get them in, you know, because they were all buddies with him. And I just thought, you know, that everybody was doing these kind of list type things. Letterman was doing the top right, 10, right, and other people were trying stuff, and it just didn't work. And I hit on that idea. And we tried it out and it went great. And I'll tell you, if you know, one of the big regrets that I have that, that that bit, when that went national, that bit was the one that resonated the most yeah. around the country. That became yeah, it, it was just people. perfect. And now the lame list or what's week this week, <laughs> featuring Grammy nominees, Soundgarden. <laughs> Fans who throw up on stage. Yeah, and it was and and uh, uh, Jim Sharp, our buddy who went on to Comedy Central at the time. When I showed him that, he actually before we were on Comedy Central, he ran that on a show called Haywire, and he said, "You know, we've everybody's been looking for like an equivalent of Letterman's list joke, and you're the only one who's figured this out." And uh, and it was really great. And 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 you know, the thing about it was that even people on the staff did not believe that we had Soundgarden. They just thought we had an amalgam of different groups. And I said, no, no, no. We had in, in early days, because Susan Silver, uh, who is uh, Chris Cornell's uh, you know, wife and yeah. manager and the manager there, uh, she had called me because I, kn I knew her from the Rocket days. And she said, hey, could, you know, could we have uh, you know, Soundgarden come on and do a lame list when, when it was starting off? And I was like, oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, and and people didn't it was too early in the bit for people to for that to register and i actually had to pull the tape back and show that no that we look it was chris cornell and kim and all those guys were on that and they were like oh wow and so we had a lot of people on that but if if we had put that bit and we did not do the high five and white guys on 
the uh, Comedy Central version of the show because we thought it would be too expensive to get the rights to It's Hip to be Square. The, 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 right. The high-fiving white guys downtown adventure! In hindsight, I realized that I'd made certain mistakes because I was somewhat intimidated by the people who came to run the uh, and help us get the, uh, the thing up and running. The and national we, show. Yeah. yeah, and we, yes, right. And we had the money. It, it, we had the money to buy, to, to get the rights to that. And had we done the lame list, in my opinion, and the high five and white guys on that show, that I think would have, I think that would have put us over the top. I think yeah. we would have renewed if, if we had done that. I, you yeah. know, it's just well, it's a theory of mine, but we didn't do that. And we also didn't, uh, uh, we, we didn't do good enough theme music for our national show, which we should have out of Seattle, because I think that was one of the big reasons that we were picked up was that that was the, the Seattle's moment in the sun. And, uh, well, I, uh, it's been fun. As we wrap up, I wanted to ask you about yeah. the celebrity that you, uh, enjoyed being a part of that show being, you know, the focal point of, of, yeah. of the show really. And I, uh, I know that for me, it happened not as often, but I remember one time I'm shooting, I did this bit called Unsolved Mysteries uh, of Seattle. There's this mystery. Seattle cab driver, Colin Hutchins. What do you think about all this rainy weather we've been having? I don't know. How do you like the Seattle Mariners chances this year? I don't know. He's the Seattle cab driver who doesn't have an opinion. And then there's this strip mall, the only one in town with no teriyaki place. Yes. And so I was always looking for interesting names of places, uh, odd juxtapositions of of signage and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And uh, and I was so I was going through the phone book and I found this company that builds. Uh, it's a construction company called. The Erection Company. <laughs> yes, yes. And I, th I thought, all I have to do in my trench coat looking like Robert Stack, I'll just go stand in front of the building yes, with the sign was, there. And, what's going uh, on inside? Yeah, what's going on in this building? I that's all, that. You don't, they didn't have to say anything. So, uh, so we go there to shoot it, and I think, you know, but I, I better go inside here and tell them what we're doing. So I walk in to the front door, and I'm just coming up to the receptionist, and she says, I know why you're here. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> she immediately recognized, oh, these are those almost live clowns. Yeah. Did, I mean, you must have got recognized all the time. Is there, is there an incident that uh, particularly stands out for you? Yes, there is. Now, uh, as you know, I started off in the uh, comedy clubs in Seattle at Swanee's Underground. That's where I met Bill Nye and mm -hmm. some of these other struggling comics. And when Jerry Seinfeld would come through, uh, he was very different than the other headliners in that he didn't immediately get destroyed on drugs afterwards. He would he would watch people's uh, uh, sets and he would sit backstage with us and he'd say, "Hey, you know, I got that bit you do about vegetables. I've got a I, I've got this idea." And he was uh, he was so beloved by the comics because he was such a generous person. Yeah. Then you get on the plane. Pilot, of course, always has to come on the PA system. This guy's so excited about being a pilot, he can't even stand himself. <laughs> well, I'm going to take it up to about 20,000. And I'm going to make a left by Pittsburgh. And I'm going to make a right by Chicago. Then I'm going to bring it down to 15,000. Yeah. 
giving you the whole route, all his moves. We're in the back going, yeah, fine, that's all. You know, just do whatever the hell you got to do. I don't know. End up where it says on the ticket, really. Is... And uh, he was the very first interview that I had when I became the host. And, I, you know, I was, I was a little intimidated by it. And he, he saw that and he, and, he, and he really helped me through the, uh, the interview. And I was really embarrassed afterwards that, you know, uh, because I was kind of intimidated by him. And then just only a few years later, when we had gotten the nod that we were going to be on uh, Comedy Central. Just coincidentally, that week, he uh, was at the Paramount, and they asked me to introduce him. And uh, he was playing with Carol Leifer, who uh, people might yep. not know. But she was the, the real Elaine. Thank you. It's good to be here. Just got off the road. I was working out in Mobile, Alabama, where the Beverly Hillbillies is on PBS. <laughs> And I had to go on to introduce him. And so I'm, it was packed. The Paramount's packed. And I'm like, and so I had this thing like, well, what's going to happen when I walk out? There, you know, it's either going to be booze yeah. or applause. And I thought, you know, I'm going to come up with this bit in case they boo. And the idea was like, hey, hi, I'm going to do a bunch of comedy. And the more I do, the less you're going to see of Jerry, you know, and just sort of milk the negative aspect of it. You know, I was preparing for that. And, you know, it was like I walked out and uh, and rather than, you know, people like, get up. It was like this just eruption of applause that I'd never gotten. It was, you know, the paramount, you know. It was like this enormous place that I'd gone to all the, you know, the, the punk rock concerts and, you know, all the musical. I'd been there all the time, but I'd never been on stage there, you know. And it was just, you know, it was like after, you know, the the, the applause died down, I said, hey, you know, we just found out this week, you know, we're going to be on all over the, you know, all, all over the, I'm getting choked up here, but they said, you know, uh, we're going to be on comedy central. Yeah. We're going to all over the country. And then there's this other like enormous applause, you know, oh, that's great. And, and so I went backstage and they were both back there and they said, man, they sure know who you are in this town. And I was like, oh, man. You know? That's a watershed moment. Uh, I'm going to let you have the last word, John. Uh, just whatever you want to say about the people who were fans of the show, the years you were on it, what it meant to you, and how it changed your life. Well, you know, it uh, it changed, you know, uh, all of our lives completely, you know, and you just look at what came out of the show. Uh, Bill is a worldwide phenomenon. Uh, the science guy uh, really did change the world. He got a lot of kids into science, you know. Uh, Bob was able to, you know, you flash forward and I'm watching the Academy Awards and there's Robert De Niro going, the nominees are Bob Nelson. And I'm like, I, you know, I can't believe this is happening, you know. Yeah. And uh, there was, uh, you know, all the stuff. Joel, you know, has his Joel career McHale, and all yeah. the people, all the things that came through that. But really, at, you know, at the heart of it, I remember when things finally clicked. I'd get in my car and I'd drive into town and I really felt like, you know, I got, I have the best job in this town. I got the best. I, 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 I'm so happy. I have the best job. And I, I just felt like, you know, I, I got the best job in the world, really. This is, this is great. And it was definitely, you know, as they say, it was the best years of my life.
As we wrapped up our conversation and were saying goodbye, John thought of one more thing he wanted to add, so I hit the record button again. This last Thanksgiving, Ross was in town. He was in Seattle, and he, he called me up and said, do you want to have lunch? And I was like, yeah, that would be great. And uh, we met for lunch, and we talked for three hours. Jeez. They had to throw us eventually out of the restaurant. Head first, I assume. Yeah, we just we hung out, and it was great. And as we were going down the elevator to go to our cars, it was kind of quiet in the elevator. We weren't really saying anything. And he said to me, he said, you know, we didn't do too bad. I said, yeah. He says, we didn't do too bad, did we? He goes, no, as a matter of fact, we did pretty fucking good, you and I. I said, absolutely. The Almost Live, Still Alive podcast, produced and edited by Morris Patrick Cashman. Technical director is Dave Tavers. Special gratitude to the legendary Kenneth George Buford McCaw, Almost Live's chief archivist. And thanks also to King TV Seattle. This program was made possible in part by the 12th century nun and mystic Hildegard von Bingen, inventor of spoken language. And by Emil Berliner, creator of the microphone. And I'm your announcer, that kid from Sluggy, Chris Cashman. <laughs>